We are so thrilled to welcome Dr. Albert Knapp to the podcast. We've known Dr. Knapp for years, and you'll hear us chat all about that and more in the upcoming episode. His area of expertise is autism, and we were fascinated by a lot of what he had to say. Before we dig into the episode, we also wanted to share an email that we recently received from Evelise Ramos. If you remember, Evelise participated in an on-air coaching call in episode 44, where we coached her on school partnership and comprehension strategies for her son, Javier. We'll link the episode in the show notes in case you haven't heard it yet, but here's Evelise's email. Hi, ladies. I hope all is great. The podcast is amazing and, as always, so helpful. I wanted to reach out to provide you with a few updates. Javier has been doing awesome. His reading and math skills just continue to grow. He has even opened up his own online t-shirt business called Night and Day Tees. You can check it out at nightanddaytees.com. I've attached a few pictures of him presenting his business to his classmates. This business venture has gotten Javier and his brother to learn about developing a business and a brand. Everywhere we go, (laughs) he is networking his business and he's full of passion. I'm so proud of him. I also would like to mention that last year, his teachers really stepped up their game and we were able to meet eye to eye and work as a team. The new school year has just begun for Javier and we are hoping for another successful year. Thanks again for all you do, and a special thanks to your guests for providing amazing tips and for opening up to share their stories. Evelise, thank you so much for just sending this to us unsolicited. We love getting emails from former guests who have been on the podcast. So, Smarties, if you want to support Javier's business adventure, we put his website in the show notes as well. And go check it out. He has super cute stuff. And now, without further ado, here is Dr. Albert Knapp. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to Episode 77 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we have Dr. Albert Knapp with us, who is a licensed psychologist, a doctoral-level board-certified behavior analyst, and a registered play therapist supervisor. Dr. Knapp runs a comprehensive mental health organization in Redondo Beach, California. His agency specializes in the treatment of individuals with disabilities such as autism and typically developing children and teenagers. Hi, Albert. Welcome. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for having me today. We're excited that this all got coordinated and you're finally here. (laughs) Yeah. Yay. So for those of you who don't know, Albert, his office is actually in my building, just a couple doors down. So we often share cases. So I'm excited to have him here. And I want credit for this relationship, though. (laughs) You get credit for my office because Albert helped me get my office, too. That's true. I technically did meet Rachel first. And you told me where your office was. And I said, well, you need to meet Steph. And then look at all that has blossomed. <laughs> yep. And all like that. And I have an office. Yay. Yay. Uh, boy. So anyway, Albert, we thought it would be great to have you on because one of your big expertise is autism. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of questions and misunderstanding about autism. And since you're an expert in autism... We're so glad to hear all of your expertise. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to share what I know with the world today. 
So let's start really simple and make sure we all have a similar basis of understanding, because I think at this point, the majority of the world, or our listeners at least, understand what autism is, but how would you define it? Okay. So autism is a neurological disorder that affects how one's brain works. And the two main deficits in autism are social deficits as well as restricted repetitive behaviors. We tend to be deficit oriented when it comes to autism, but are there benefits to it as well? There can be some benefits. One of the benefits essentially could be preservative interests if they are a socially appropriate interest or their interests that um, serve them well in you know academics or their education they can get a really advanced knowledge in those sort of areas and potentially be their own little expert in those areas. And then ideally when they get older, if they develop the appropriate social skills to share those interests with others, they actually do really great research and really great public speaking events. And like a great example of that is Temple Grandin, who's probably one of the most famous individuals with autism, who's done a lot of great research on cattle herding, you know, in safe, ethical ways on how to kill cattle, which is like a humane way for the cattles to die. Hmm. I didn't actually know that. Do you know who Temple Grandin is, Steph? Mm-mm. I believe when I was at Berkeley, she came and spoke and she talked about how she was one of the first people who put herself in the position of the cattle and saw what they were seeing. And mm-hmm. what they were seeing was terrifying the animals. And so correct me if I'm wrong, Albert, but they changed a lot of the way that they do things Yes. As a result of her interpretation of what the animals were feeling and experiencing. Yeah. That's very cool. There was a really great documentary on HBO about her life where Claire Danes plays Temple Grandin. And uh, Temple Grandin has said that it was a pretty accurate representation of what Mm, she's done. That's awesome. Television viewing for tonight. Yeah. For both of us, I'm sure. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) totally, totally. So I'm curious about autism has definitely changed over the years right? There were different Mm -hmm. terms like Asperger's and things like that. And now it's the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder. Yes. So up until the DSM-5, which now came out probably about three to five years ago, there was like kind of three different severity levels for autism, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, or essentially PDD NOS, Mm -hmm. uh, was the most mild form of autism. Typically, there were some social difficulties, but no language delay and very mild to none sort of restricted repetitive behaviors. So kind of just a very mild presentation. Then kind of the next one up that was a little bit more severe, but not the most severe is Asperger's disorder or commonly called Asperger's syndrome or just Asperger's for ease. And the only diagnostic criteria that was different between Asperger's and what they called autistic disorder back then was language delay. So individuals diagnosed with Asperger's had no language delay. So they had typical language development, but they often had like kind of formal speech, kind of little professories talk. And then the rest of the criteria was exactly the same. But because they had language abilities, they were able to learn a little bit better. So they tend to present more higher functioning essentially because they were able to have typical language development. And then the most severe presentation was what was called autistic disorder. And it was essentially a language delay before the age of two, and then social deficits and restricted repetitive behaviors. And that was all in the DSM-4 TR, or DSM-4 text revision, which is what TR stands for. And then when the DSM-5 came out, um, they collapsed all those categories together. And what they did is now there's just one disorder called autism spectrum disorder, and they have severity levels. So they have severity levels one, two, and three, 
and they rate the severity levels of social deficits and restricted repetitive behaviors, where one's mild and three is the most severe. And the diagnosis also allows for individuals to move independently within the severity levels in both the socialization component and the restricted repetitive behavior component. So yeah, people believe it gives a richer understanding of the individual and allows for more flexibility and movement within the diagnosis while still maintaining the diagnosis. Interesting. Because with autism, it's one of the few diagnoses where it can be made by history, even if you don't currently meet any of the diagnostic criteria. Oh, I understand. So if it was how you were in the past, but not necessarily how you're presenting now, you can still give the diagnosis? Yes, it would probably just be level one. And in the narrative explanation of the diagnosis, you'll explain that while none of the current criteria is met, Per history and you know review of records, it was clear that this criteria was met back in early childhood when the child was three or four years old or early elementary school. Ideally, with with intervention, you know, individual deficits will be masked. They'll learn new skills, right. and we would love if individuals that you know are older, into teenage years, young adults, that if they did go for an evaluation of autism, they wouldn't what we call like pop or ping on any of the autism scales. Because that means that early intervention or intervention worked and they're no longer exhibiting the behavioral characteristics of autism. That's fascinating. That is fascinating, actually. I didn't know that. That would define success is if they didn't meet. Yes. That would be that mm-hmm. would mean that the interventions were successful. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, this is why intervention is so important. I'm really excited about the change of diagnosis. I think it's better for families because it gives them a more sort of specific look at their child or their, you know, partner, you know, whatever it may be. And it really allows them to understand the flexibility and fluidness within the diagnosis. And it's not so much a kind of label where in the past Asperger's were higher functioning with air quotes and, you know, individuals with autistic disorder were lower functioning again with air quotes. Understood. So What I'm really interested in, and it is because I've had experience with this in my practice, is girls getting misdiagnosed as inattentive ADHD when it was more accurately autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. I think there's starting to be a greater understanding of this, but can you talk a little bit about why that would happen and what's kind of being done to correct that? So autism typically affects boys four times more than girls. So it is much more common for a boy to be diagnosed with autism. Additionally, when you look at all the diagnoses, boys are generally diagnosed with what we call like externalizing disorders. So disorders that are disruptive, you can visually see what's going on. They tend to act out more than girls. So all the disorders that have a very clear sort of like behavioral component to it, boys tend to get diagnosed more than girls with that. And then girls tend to get diagnosed more with internalizing behaviors, things that aren't as keen to the outside observer, things that are more internal. So I think with your question, with girls being diagnosed as inattentive ADHD, a lot of those are just, maybe they're not blurting out answers, they're just kind of missing things or they're not focusing. Mm -hmm. Um, They're maybe a little bit more quiet, so they're not talking as much. And you probably start to see issues in schoolwork where they're not keeping up. Mm -hmm. And so intentionally, whenever there's a schoolwork issue, I think the first diagnosis that always comes to mind is ADHD, whether it be inattentive or hyperactivity. And it really takes a really keen observer to do a really rich developmental history to really determine, is it truly inattentive ADHD or is it potentially autism spectrum disorder? 
So one of the gold standards in assessing autism is called the ADOS, which is the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. They're currently on their second revision. And it's a semi-structured interview with the evaluator and the individual. And they do very specific activities that target each of the core deficits of autism. And then the individual scored based on how well they perform those activities. And then when you compare those results to direct measures of ADHD, such as the TOVA or the Connors Continuous Performance Test, you can say, oh, there's core deficits in autism. And maybe there is a little bit of inattention going on, but autism would better explain why they're inattentive. For example, they're not as motivated to attend to things that are not interesting to them, Mm -hmm. or they are focusing on what they really want to focus on or are interested in. Or maybe they're doing very subtle behaviors that are self-stimulatory, like hair twirling or finger tapping or kind of very mild body rocking. And those things potentially may go unnoticed and just be, oh, she's zoning out. She's looking out Mm. the window or whatnot. She's not attending to what's going on. I'm fascinated by the internalized disorder diagnoses for girls and the externalized for boys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a long phenomenon. As new students go through school, hopefully they learn that, and then they are essentially paying attention when they're diagnosing. And they have to really do a really rich developmental history to really understand the disorder. I've had a couple of clients in the practice where we've gotten an assessment. The girl had been inattentive ADHD all the way through. That's how it presented. There were some social issues that she would have with friends. This is a couple of different cases. I'm kind of combining into one story and black and white thinking and maybe more rigid. Mm-hmm. And stuff will remember when they came back and they said this diagnosis, I lost my mind. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't see it. I didn't see it in her. And ultimately, the decision that was kind of made was even though when we've read through these reports and we saw how the assessment was kind of put together and the narrative was established, it totally made sense. Mm -hmm. Functionally for her life, it wasn't going to be a useful tool for her to necessarily experience her world through the lens of this is who I am. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't such a deficit that it was easier to focus on the behaviors and the social issues were so mild and under the radar. So it was really fascinating when this all came to light those couple of times. Yeah. I was shocked both times. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's somewhere I think that sometimes the diagnosis doesn't necessarily matter for us because we treat how it's presenting. Mm -hmm. But There's been a couple of times where I've been surprised that they got the diagnosis or surprised that they didn't get that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It goes both ways, actually. But we're not doctors and we can't diagnose. So it's not something that we really delve into much. But just, you know, on a personal level when I'm reading it going, oh, interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's intellectually interesting for us to see how you guys put this all together. Yeah. Well, you know, in order to really thoroughly understand a diagnosis, individuals really should get psychological testing because you compare and contrast various disorders that look similar, but have very different origins. And, you know, the DSM can be a little bit overwhelming, but there really is a core issue with every disorder in the manual. Mm -hmm. So like looking for that sort of issue would then kind of guide you in what diagnosis to take. Mm -hmm. And again, with autism, it gets a little tricky because you can diagnose it via history only, And sometimes, even right in the DSM, it says that the disorder may not manifest itself 
until social demand exceeds social capacity. So that's sometimes what leads to later diagnosis of kids in like maybe later elementary school or middle school when socialization becomes a huge part of their development and they're not able to do it. Mm. And for girls, they turn inward of themselves and they get isolated and depressed, not necessarily clinically, but just, you know, sad and like lonely. And boys tend to act out because they're not fitting in anymore. So Albert, is there anything else that can be diagnosed purely through history? Or is autism really the only thing? Never thought about this. That's a good question. Um, I need a moment to think about that. Off the top of my head, there's a lot of disorders that there's a time specifier. So they have to have symptomatology for X months or X years in order to make it. But something that is not fully present now, off the top of my head, I don't think so. I think autism is the only one that if you're not presenting with it currently, you can still be diagnosed with it. That's fascinating. Hmm. It is fascinating, actually. So with the diagnosis comes a lot of shame for parents. Mm -hmm. And there's families that, you know, don't necessarily accept a diagnosis because they don't see it or they don't want it to be true. Or some families fully embrace it and start their run of how they're going to help their children. But Mm -hmm. what do you say to parents who are exhibiting signs of this is a really hard diagnosis to ingest and help their child. Because I imagine that you are telling parents yourself. So what do you say to them? So I emphasize with them that they essentially are mourning a loss of a typically developing child. And they're now embracing on a path of having a child with special needs in some form or fashion, some more severe than others, But, you know, no parent signs up for having a special needs child. Um, So I empathize with them that, you know, this is going to be tough and hard. But then I try to reframe the diagnosis into being a key that unlocks services and potential for their child. So this way, with proper diagnosis, they can get the appropriate treatment to work on the core deficits of autism and the most empirically validated treatment for autism spectrum disorder is applied behavior analysis or ABA for short. So they can get that sort of treatment and then hopefully and ideally they will not have as much of a deficit or severity level. And then their child will hopefully get closer to what a typically evolving child would be and the same issues and concerns that the parents have, hopefully they will be subsided. They also get to form a relationship with their child that is essentially blanketed with this diagnosis and they can learn really unique skills that they have. They can relish in what the kid's really good at and they can find those moments of love for their child when they're really connecting with them. Mm -hmm. Kids with autism still want love and affection. They still need nurturing touch and it's just learning how to interact with them in a way that's mutually enjoyable for both. And that's something too that they can learn over time. But it is definitely overwhelming for parents. And it is definitely something that is shameful. And I try my best to have them embrace it and not hide it. Because if they're able to embrace it, they're going to be more willing to look for services and support for their child. 100%. And what services besides the ABA do you recommend for children that have been diagnosed? I'm sure it depends on age, but... Right. So there are a few things that I always recommend to families. So in the state of California, we are very fortunate to have the regional center system. Mm-hmm. And the regional center system is a government organization that provides lifelong services to an individual with autism 
and they provide other services for other categories of disabilities. But autism is a qualifying diagnosis, which makes them eligible for services. So I always encourage them to sign up with their local regional center. It's all based on where they live. And even if they don't need services today through the regional center, there may become a time where they do. And getting them in when they get the fresh diagnosis is really the best track to get them in because a lot of the regional centers will accept the psychological eval that was done and not make them go through another reevaluation process. It can take more time and energy. So I always encourage regional center funding. The second thing I always encourage is I encourage the families to seek out IEP services through their school district, including the families that go to a private school where there's not necessarily a legal requirement for that. But, you know, again, in the United States, there are federal protections and services available to children with a disability. I believe they call it autism now, is one of the IDEA eligibility categories. Mm -hmm. And just because they have a diagnosis does not mean they'll automatically qualify for school-based services. But again, if you get in the system, you can see what supports are available for your child. And maybe they don't need something at diagnosis because they're doing okay, but maybe in a year, if the social demands or the workload gets too much for them, they are going to need those supported services. So I encourage right off the bat the families to do those two things, is to get an IEP or ask, essentially you have that request from the district to do an IEP evaluation and then become a client of the regional center. And then in terms of other adjunctive services, it really is individualized for the learner or for the student. But sometimes I do recommend cognitive behavioral therapy for some of the older adolescents or young adults with autism, because that is a nice kind of advanced bridge from ABA, because ABA is all behavioral. So throwing in thoughts, which is what they don't do in ABA, and doing it in CBT therapy could be really helpful. I also often recommend educational therapy if they're having specific learning problems or things they're not grasping, giving that individual attention for the child and teaching them strategies and skills that help them specifically is really beneficial. And I sometimes will also recommend music therapy or art therapy or drama therapy, one of the creative therapies, because that utilizes the right side of the brain. Mm. And sometimes individuals on the spectrum, if you're spending all day long drilling with different tasks they have to do, and you're trying to do a lot of language-based interventions, sometimes if you tap the right side of the brain instead of the left side of the brain, we can get some improvements there. So as an adjunctive therapy, not as a replacement therapy, I often recommend one of the creative arts therapy. And closing, I also will recommend occupational therapy if there's any sort of fine motor or gross motor difficulties that the individual has or sensory processing disabilities or disorders or difficulties rather. And then I also recommend uh, physical therapy when appropriate, if they're having trouble walking or they're having trouble moving their limbs around and they can't do that as easily. And then speech therapy, if there's a speech deficit, I recommend both individual speech therapy to work on like articulation and then group group speech therapy to help with like pragmatics. I want to go back to one part you just said, because I don't want to ever assume our audience knows everything that we know. Can you talk a little bit about IDEA and what that is? Yeah. IDEA is the Individuals with Disability Education Act. It was passed, I think, in the 70s, and then it got like a major revision in the 90s with the No Child Left Behind Act. Uh, Essentially, every public school has the federal obligation to provide what's called a free, appropriate public education, very commonly abbreviated as FAFE. And 
for a child that has a disability, they must by law provide supportive services and individualized goals to help the child meet their unique educational goals and requirements. So every school district has to do it. If the child's in private school, there is still an obligation from the home school district, so wherever the family lives, for them to do an IEP evaluation. And then if they are approved for IEP services, they still get an IEP and the family can take it to the private school and maybe the private school can implement some of the strategies or some of the goals. Maybe they can't. I know some private schools do what's called like a step plan, which is like, it's not a legally binding document, but it's a similar process where they will identify the unique learning difficulties of a child and then implement that in the school setting. Mm -hmm. And then for IDEA, I believe there's like 13 different categories And I don't know them all off the top of my head, but the two that relate to mental health the most would be other health impairment, which is often where ADHD gets classified as. And then there's an autism one. Actually, there's three. And there's also a specific learning disability. So mathematics, reading, comprehension, writing. There's also a, it's called specific learning impairment, actually, on IDEA. So very similar terminology, just different words for different groups, I guess you can say. Right. The 13 or 14 categories that you're mentioning, these are the 13 or 14 different ways that the public school system can qualify somebody for the IEP or 504 or whatever is going to take place next. Yep, that is correct. They have to, quote unquote, fit into one of those categories. Yes, they have to be eligible and like meet the criteria to be in that category. There's also like traumatic brain injuries mm-hmm. yep. and things like that. I mean, I would say most often our clients get OHI, which is other health impairment. Right. Yeah. There's also emotional disturbance is also one of the categories. Sometimes more severe pathology would end up in there. So that one's also used for kind of mental health individuals as well. All right. So this is all so, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know what you recommend. I know you do testing and do reports sometimes, but strategies to help students learn that have been diagnosed or undiagnosed and you know maybe they'll be diagnosed at some point but maybe if you have a learner or a child that you're suspecting something is going on Mm -hmm. what would you say would be some strategies that you like to give parents so when i think about learning because i'm a behaviorist i also think learning is like an active behavior you can see the learning process take place You can see the learning by the individual learning how to do new math problems or learning how to read new words. So there's like an observable component to learning. So considering it's a behavior, oftentimes we want to do a lot of antecedent or kind of proactive strategies in order to help set the learner up for success. So some of my favorites are priming, which is a very fancy way of saying, give me a heads up of what's expected. Mm -hmm. So if the child's expected to you know read a paragraph and answer questions maybe that child gets an individual direction of so we're going to first read this paragraph here then we're going to answer these questions below here Uh, it can also be done in a class-wise setting like instead of just saying like you know open the page and follow the directions (laughs) you can say open your book to page 30 make sure you read you know this page 30 underneath the picture and then on page 31 make sure you answer the three questions or four questions that follow and that's called priming. Again, fancy way of saying giving a heads up. Um, I also like using a visual schedule. And a visual schedule could be pictures for younger learners all the way up to a written schedule for individuals who can read and write. And essentially, a schedule helps keep kids on the spectrum on task. It also lets them know what's coming up. 
And what I really like, it helps with the passage of time. So if you see a list of like four things you have to do, and then when it's done, you like cross it out or you erase it, or on the visual schedule, typically you take it off and then you see three icons left. It really lets the individual know you have three more things to go. And then oftentimes with kids on the spectrum, you do want to give time for preferred activities or like a break time. So you can also work in the breaks in the visual schedule. So they know, well, first I have to do like some math problems. And then when I'm done with math, maybe the rest of the class goes right on to something else. I get like a five minute break. And then I go back on to my next thing. And then that can be done, like I said, visually or written. There's also another primary technique called the pre-math principle, which is first then. So in science, it's called first a low frequency behavior, then a high frequency behavior. But it can be conceptualized as like kind of first work, then play, or first something you don't like to do, then something you don't like to do. Because typically things you like to do are high frequency behaviors, and things you don't like to do are low frequency behaviors. So that's another kind of way to get them to know, like, you do this one thing I need you to do, then you get to do something that you prefer to do. So that's called the pre-map principle. Another strategy, behavioral momentum, which essentially is designing the child's learning activities to be the easier stuff first, and then working up to the harder types of problems. Because in the behavioral world, you say they get access to reinforcement. They would feel good by being able to complete a problem or answer a question that is easier for them. And then that kind of happiness feeling that they get, or if they need external motivation, then that way they get that kind of motivation to go on to the next one or the next one. So you definitely want to use behavioral momentum. Another really good one is prompting. So there's all types of prompting from least to most. A really easy prompt hierarchy is like a gesture or visual prompt at the least instructive. Then like a model, you show how to do it, but you don't do it for them at like the mid-range prompt. And then you would directly verbally tell them what to do and or you would hand over hand prompt them depending on the task as like the most instructive prompting to use. So that's something that is often done. And then the last two strategies I want to share are reinforcement-based strategies. Reinforcement is a fancy way of saying, giving the child something that they like, which is going to increase the likelihood of the behavior, in this case, learning would continue. So from really easy things like verbal praise or you know high fives, just giving them a lot of individualized attention when they are doing what you want them to do and probably at a higher frequency than like the general class would need or a typically developing person. We call that differential reinforcement of alternate behaviors, DRA for short. And then also a common one used, especially with smaller kids, but you can definitely use it with all learners, is a token economy. There'll be a little, like usually it's a laminated thing. There'll be anywhere from like three to 10 little spots and they would get like a little icon, i.e. a token, every time they do what's expected. So it helps the individual learn like how much they have to go. Then when they get all their tokens, they typically get a preferred reinforcer, something they like, or they get a break from the work demand, usually also something that they like to do. And then when they get all the tokens, they can see that they're working towards that. And again, it helps with the passage of time. It kind of provides a concrete example of what they did in order to get that token. So on the podcast, we often talk about how you really only want to start one thing at a time, but how does it work for learners who have autism? So for learners with autism, you kind of want to take a look to see what works for what. So for example, a token economy might work really well for math, and that's what gets them to learn their math skills. But maybe priming works better for reading. 
So you have to be willing to try different things. It's not a one size fits all. And you have to be willing to give it a couple of days before you throw in the towel and says, well, this isn't working for this learner. So you want to make sure that you give things a good, honest college try. I say at least a week of doing it relatively consistently. Nobody's perfect, but more often than not, you want to be able to try a strategy. And if it doesn't work, then rethink what could work for this individual. And think about, well, what did the learner not like? For example, if you're priming a kiddo and like, stop talking to me, they probably don't want that because that's distracting to them or they're not enjoying that. So maybe for them, you do a token because that's just visual. You don't have to talk to them. You just place it down and then they don't get distracted by hearing the praise or whatnot. So you kind of have to even flow a little bit and give it a try. And also something that may work for like a month could stop working. So then you have to retry a different strategy. So there's never going to be this strategy works perfectly 100% of the time for this learner. So you have to be willing to ebb and flow and change things out. Albert, how can people connect with you and learn about your services in your practice? And if they want to reach out to you individually, if they have questions? Oh, perfect. Probably the easiest way would be to go to our website because all of our information is there. So that's Therapy. Dot com. Um, they can also email me directly. My email address is drknapp at akatherapy.com. And of course, if you want to pick up the phone and call, we can do that as well. And the phone number is 310-376-2468. Currently, we have mental health services and psych testing services in Redondo Beach, California. And then we also do home-based ABA services in the South Bay community of Los Angeles. We'll link all of that juicy stuff in the show notes as well. Perfect. Okay, perfect. Albert, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our Smarties audience today. I'm really excited about what we all get to learn. Oh, thank you for having me today. It was great to talk with you guys, and I'd be more than willing to talk to any families that reach out that need some more information. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great week, Smarties. Have a great week.